This is episode number 241 of the Rise Man podcast with Dylan Bain. Let's face it, money is emotional. What is up, Rising Man family? Jetty Zuma here with another episode of the Rising Man podcast. My guest for today is Dylan Bain. Dylan was living out the dead-end middle-class dream, supporting his wife through grad school and fighting to keep his house and provide for his baby daughter by juggling three jobs. The threat of bankruptcy and losing his home was enough to rattle him out of his stale money mindset and led him to consider a new way to build a life he wanted for himself and for his family. Today, Dylan has successfully transformed his relationship with money, secured a career that allowed his family to grow, purchase a home, and show up as the man he wants to be every single day. Now he's focused on helping other men become savages by providing pathways to financial sovereignty. In this episode, Dylan and I discussed the most common causes for financial issues among men, how our beliefs and practices with money are shaped by what we learn from our parents and society, why Dylan is so passionate about helping other men become financially sovereign, and lastly, what Dylan believes we need to accept in the notion that money is emotional. Without further ado, Dylan Bain. All right, Rising Man family, I've got another amazing guest joining me here today, coming in all the way from Denver, Colorado, Dylan Bain. It's good to have you here, man. It is absolutely my pleasure. I cannot wait for this conversation. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in everything that you have to say. You recently came in for to the Rising Man community and did an amazing presentation for our Fire Circle members there. And just the conversation of financial wellness and health is something I think is so important and essential. And you've got a really great angle on it, my friends. I'm looking forward to chopping it up with you today. Well, 100%. And I think the money conversation is so both under underrated and and so needed because I, I feel like we spend a lot of time focused on what we're missing as a community and as a society, which is a lot of human connection and being in, in brotherhood and community. And your finances are how you're going to build that. It's the foundation for basically everything in a modern society. And at the same time, there's a lot of emotions around it. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of, you know, worries about, oh, I'm, I'm just chasing the dollar. Is it still worthy? And helping to have those conversations, particularly for young men, I think is critical. And I think that we do it as a society do a very poor job of having those conversations in a holistic way. Yeah, agreed. Uh, well, let's start right here. Because I know one of your beliefs that I've heard you say is that so much of our financial beliefs or story starts when we're children with what we observe and what we experience as kids and from our parents or other people that we watch with their money. So what was your financial story growing up? What, were you, what was your impression of money before you became an independent adult? <laughs> so I grew up in in like the tale of two cities um, because on the one hand, my father, you know, he he really worked very hard to create wealth in his life. Um, you know, I he's coming out of a blue collar background, broke his hip when he was very young, no longer could continue in the trades. And so then it moved into the financial world. And, you know, he's he, he likes to say that he's the last of the generation where he doesn't have a college degree, but he worked in high finance mm. and was highly successful in the commission. You know, he did a lot of commission sales work for you know mortgages specifically um, and really built a lot of wealth. So I I grew up with that as the side from my father of saying like, oh yeah, we have the money to do things, right? We have a house, we have a yard, we always feel really secure, you know, and, and, you know, this will come up a little bit later, I'm sure. But like, you know, in his really good years, he would do things like buy my mom a car for Christmas, you know? So that's the one side. But then on the other side, 
was my mother who, you know, was raised by, you know, you know, her parents, you know, her father came out of an orphanage, you know, way back when they both grew up on farms, they moved to, you know, where I grew up, which is Kenosha, Wisconsin for a factory job. But they were raised, she was raised with this idea that like, you have to squeeze every penny until Lincoln squints. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have the wealth of my father. On the other hand, my mother would never buy anything that was wasn't on sale. She's constantly clipping coupons. You know, we can't afford this. And, you know, I think one one story that I I really internalized was this idea that I, I, I'm not taking good care of my stuff if I ever have to replace it. You know, so specifically, you know, when I was you know entering back into the corporate world, I was leaving public accounting. And, and this is, you know, we're now, you know, almost 30 years after the incident, right? And I have to buy a pair of shoes. And I'm going to buy a pair of shoes. And I I, I put them in the cart online and I, I hover the mouse over by and my finger physically would not click the button. And I started sweating bullets. I started shaking. I'm in full panic attack over buying a pair of shoes that I had the cash to pay for. And and like I get away from the desk and I go and I, I, I wash my face off with cold water trying to get a hold of myself because it's just a pair of shoes. And suddenly I'm 16 years old again. And my mom is yelling at me about my shoes. And what had happened was is she had we had to get a pair of shoes and we bought the cheapest pair possible. It was a pair of white Reeboks. And for that, I, I got to work on a farm. I got to go to school, got to train for wrestling, got to work on construction crews with that one pair of shoes. And they literally rotted off my feet because I needed a pair of work boots, but I didn't have them because they were too, they were quote unquote too expensive. So now as an adult, I am terrified of buying shoes for myself because of the story that I was taught that you're not taking good care of your stuff. How dare you? You're bad for you know wanting something expensive because what I had asked for was, you know, hey, let's get some work boots. And it's not like we didn't have the money because my dad made plenty of money. It was we have this generational trauma that's coming from when my grandfather was in the orphanage and the nuns would punish him with you know for for growing like a young boy does and suddenly needing new shoes that he then transmitted into my mother who is now transmitting it to me. And now my choice as an adult as a father is do I wish this money story to continue to my children or am I willing to turn and face it to deal with it to integrate it as part of my psyche and rewrite the money story for myself? so that I can give my children a better money story to move forward with. Mm -hmm. and, and man, that's such a great example of all of the different types of stories that we inherit generationally, it, just like a broad stroke of the things that are passed on because of the patterning and modeling over the course of many different lifetimes. And obviously the, the financial one is such a big one, um, especially when we start to think about the traces of this, you know, especially here in the United States, everyone who is here, for the, for the most part, many of us have uh, families who came from a different place, who came here because of some sort of opportunity. And naturally, there's uh, there's frugality attached to that because of coming to a place, often starting from scratch with nothing. And how do you do that? You make the most of what you have. So I think it's such a relatable story. I think many of us have that at our origins and our roots. And I love how you outlined it's up to us, especially when we start to have our own children to determine, do I want to pass this on? Do I want to choose, if I'm aware of it, do I want to choose to give that to my kids or do I want to give them something different? Now, for you, do you still think that there is some, some benefit? Do you find any um, positives to that story that you got, particularly from your mom around being, um, I don't know, resourceful with money? 
So there's, of course, degrees, right? You can have the same event with two energetic charges behind it and end up with two different results. You know, and we it's it's kind of like the adage of like, you don't it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Mm -hmm. There's a question you know, with like, was my mother trying to teach me to manage good resources? Well, yes, but she also denied me the tools to be successful. And so there's no intentionality. It's just response. And so when you look at that, if I'm going to say like in that one story, now, did my mother teach me a lot of very positive things? 100%. She taught me that households should have hugs and kisses and laughter and joy. That was one thing that was very important to her and she taught me. But when it came to money, she taught me that scarcity rules the day and that you, know, you should always make do with whatever you have. Well, as a result, I am very resourceful. I do make do with what I have. I'm great at improvising my way out of things. Um, that is a lesson my mother taught me. and. I also find myself fighting with one arm tied behind my back because I tied it there because I don't want to buy the tools I need to be successful. I don't want to resource myself. I don't want to go get that massage. Um, and a great example of you know breaking that pattern down was I had a really busy weekend, right? I had a lot of work I had to get done. You know, not only do I have a, a full-time corporate job, but I'm also bootstrapping my own business, um, you know, doing a lot of podcasting with people and getting, you know, more holistic messages out there. And so, like, I needed to be really productive. Well, my mother would say, well, you got to knuckle down. But I've learned better to say, no, I need to be resourced. So I went for a run. And I took, took some time to make myself a really delicious meal that was very nourishing and fulfilling to me. And I had the most productive weekend I've ever had. But that took, like, four hours of time to really, you know, resource myself to put myself in position. It's that level of intentionality that was missing from the lessons. Like, yes, you need to, to manage your money. That's all, that's an emphatically true statement. Yes, you need to be resourceful. That's also true. And you need to be intentional about how you're doing both of those things. Because if you're not, then you're actually just letting them rule your life instead of you living your life. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point. I, I start to imagine someone who's listening to this conversation here who maybe this is sparking this thought for the first time. Maybe this is the first time that somebody actually thought, oh my God, I'm... I am doing exactly what my mom, my dad, their parents, and even their parents had done. And I don't know if I want to do that anymore. Going back to that place for you, because obviously this is many years of work that you've done for yourself to be in this place and have this conversation. What is What do you think is really the starting point of beginning to review and take an inventory of where these beliefs come from so that we can start to consider how we might approach them differently? Ooh, that is a, how much time do we have? <laughs> I, maybe just a few words of like, you know, the, the country directions, like over or down that way, send somebody in the right, in the right direction. So I, I have a, I have a, a framework that I've, I borrowed. Um, you know, I was a teacher for many, many years. Mm. Um, and we always talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm. right? So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have, you know, tier one is your physiological needs. Tier two is safety and security. Tier three is relationships. Then tier four is esteem and then self-actualization. The thing I'll say, though, is that like when you look at those tiers, the, your money story is where you put that whole pyramid on, right? The money situation is the dirt we built that pyramid of needs. But most people don't even, they've actually dug themselves a hole and they're what I call a tier zero person. They're unaware of their own needs and that that's the game is getting their needs met in a holistic way that serves them. So these are the people who go to their job without ever understanding that they're dependent on it. These are the people who just assume that their wife is going to, you know, be intimate with them whenever, you know, whenever they want. These are the nice guys with the covert contracts who think that the world's supposed to come to them. These are tier zero people. I don't think that people 
start looking at their stories until they realize that they've never had the thought that they need to. Right. For me, it was a shock. You know, I had a case in which, you know, I had been teaching for eight years. My principal calls me in and asked me to commit fraud. And I told her no. And then she pointed out, hey, Dylan, like, you know, your teacher's salary doesn't pay for all the bills. You have two additional jobs. You have no health insurance. You're on food stamps and welfare. So maybe you should think about this in terms of what your daughter needs. And I, I did. I had to go home and I, I sat down with my daughter and I'm, I am playing with her and I put her to bed. And then, you know, to my eternal shame, got myself very drunk and started having the thought of like, but what do I want? Like, what, what do I want in this world? What stories are holding me back? And the story that was holding me back with my teaching was that if I just did all the right things for long enough, somebody would come by and anoint me with financial wealth. That if I just, if I was just good enough, if I just, you know, towed the line good enough, I would eventually be able to have a house with a yard with my kids. I had done everything right. I was a great student. I was a fantastic teacher. I did all the things. I did all the extras, you know, chaperoning dances and starting a wrestling team and all these things. And I got nothing out of it. That was the story that I identified in that moment was like, absolutely not. In fact, fuck your story. I'm going to go do something for me. I'm going to follow my path because I want a better future for myself and for my kids and for my wife. You know, we had been living overseas. We moved back to the United States and I promised my wife that I would support her through graduate school and support her going, you know, transitioning into motherhood. And I wasn't doing it following the approved path. And so that was my, that was for me when I started going, oh my God, all these stories are bullshit until proven otherwise. Like I have to completely rewrite this. I have to start thinking what serves me. But I think for other people, it can be just as much of like, they have a malaise and they're looking around at me and like, why don't I have, like, why am I discontent? There has to be some itch somewhere where they're looking at it and going, there's got to be more. And that's when they have the opportunity now to go, oh, why am I here? Oh, because I followed all these other paths. And that brought me here. And if I want out, I have to put those down and find a different path. Yeah, I think it's a different version of that rock bottom story, right? A lot of people talk about hitting rock bottom when it comes to addiction. I think there's a similar version of a rock bottom when it comes to I call it finances or just call it um, economic position in life. I think a lot of people at some point say, you know what, there, there's got to be something different. There's got to be something better than this. And then there's that mountain that we get to climb. Now, uh, how old were you when you'd say you, you, you had that moment of, okay, got to do something 33. Different. 33. Okay. That's good to know. I think there's a lot of um, men out there who don't have that wake up moment until they're in their thirties or sometimes even later. I think even if there's a guy listening to this conversation, who's in his twenties, who's having that moment right now, it's, a, it's, you're already ahead of the game compared to a lot of people when it comes totally. to this. And um, so that, what makes me think of that is, okay. So then we go back to this moment where you have this realization. Okay. The stories that are uploaded and registered in my hard drive are not going to work for me anymore. When I had that moment for myself, I remember feeling, afraid right away because I said, okay, wow, these stories aren't going to work for me anymore, but what is, and how can I be sure that that's going to work for me? And I was having these conversations within myself when I was the sole provider, I think parallel circumstances to you, right? I was sole provider for my family. We already had one child. We were having our second child. I was starting a business and all of these questions were coming up for me that I didn't have answers to. And I also didn't know exactly where to look. So it was very, very scary time for me. I wonder if you can relate to that experience as well. Oh my God. The, 
So when I, when I went home and I, I was playing with my daughter, um, I mean, I, I was in Flagstaff, Arizona at the time, and, and I lived in the rough part of town because it was all I could afford. And there was a meth house down the street. So like, you could smell the burnt plastic smell, you know, as they're cooking. And, you know, there's the drunk guy who always slept between our cars. And, you know, my backyard was a drainage ditch. And I, I was sitting at the kitchen table and I, I, I was just going, there's got to be more. There's just got to be more. And I was, you know, I, I had the vision of the house with the yard, kids playing, the steaks on the grill, my wife telling me she loves what we built. And I had this like moment and, and two things happened simultaneously. I, I had that vision. And then I thought I'm done making lemonade with lemons. I'm going to build a cannon. I'm going to freeze the lemons and I'm going to return fire and bombard life until it stops giving me lemons. And immediately after that moment, I, I like started, I burst into tears. Like I burst into tears because it was beautiful and it was exactly, it, it was so like nourishing to me, but also because that wasn't me. I wasn't that guy. I was Dylan, you know, the, the jovial teacher, the guy who really cared about math and, you know, just got along and he was the perfect, he was a perfect puzzle piece for everything. Like there was this, uh, this moment we're realizing that, you know, at least at the time feeling like, oh, I, I have to die for something new to arise in me. And, and what I've, what I realized later now and with the, with the blessings of, of hindsight is that that is just a transition of life that I'm doing that every day, that I'm redefining my role on a day-to-day basis. This was no different. This is just the day, which instead of walking forward, I turned to the left and want perpendicular to what my life was. And that I have that option at all times, you know, and you, you brought up the addiction part. And I, I, I've thought about this a lot. When people come into my practice for financial coaching and they say, I'm bad with money, I always ask myself, are they just addicted to scarcity? And what I've come to understand is that my old stories, I was addicted to them because I was the hero. I was the downtrodden guy who worked all these jobs and bounced at the local music video and drove truck and prepared people's taxes. And, you know, but I was like somehow in my own mind more noble because I was really struggling at the end of the month, if I could keep the wolves from the door, like, Aren't I just the hero that is so worthy of respect? That story is so enticing because A, I don't have any real responsibility because I'm downtrodden, but then I'm still a hero because I kept the wolves from the door. And so in order to make that transition from scarcity to abundance, I had to let that story go and find something new. And that was really hard. Hmm. Yeah, let's let's dig into that a little bit more because that's also something I could really relate to. Um, that you did, I definitely couldn't say it better myself, man. There's the nobility of that story of just grabbing yourself by your bootstraps. And I took care of my family for another month. It's such a cozy place to settle into and, and, and move into that complacency. And I know for myself, when I recognized that was happening for me, I'm like, okay, how do I even live into a different version of that story? Because now I've got my wife and I've been together since 2012. So we're going, we're going on 11 years now of being together where that's been my identity as a provider, as a, as a man in partnership. I'm the guy who makes sure that we get by, that we live to fight another day. So totally. what do I do if I'm not that guy anymore? What is, what is it? It's a whole new book. Totally. Totally. I mean, and, and, and you know, there is an underlying subtext, I think, to having this idea that I'm downtrodden nobility, right? Mm. It is, if I do it long enough, then they'll love me. Mm. 
if I just do this long enough, then she'll love me. You know, my mom will respect me. My dad will be proud of me. My wife will fuck me. Right. And, and people will like talk and whispered, you know, it whispers when I walk by of like, that's the guy, the downtrodden noble, like it's bullshit is what it is, but it's part of the subtext there that we can never really stand up and be proud and be counted. And so when you're rewriting that story and saying like, okay, well, you know, maybe I don't want to be the sole provider anymore. Maybe I want a partnership. What, how do I want to show up as a father? What do I want my, my daughter to see some guy who always struggles or some guy who never has to struggle because he's built an unassailable position in his life. Does she, you know, when you, when your daughter is, is upset and crying, the arms that encircle her to create the sense of safety of the world is okay. Do you want it to be like, I'll fight and I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just eke us by honey. I'll just eke us by. Or do you want it to say like, what I have built can contain all of your pain and I can hold it all with complete certainty because I have built certainty in my life. Which one do we want to actually be? And I think that when, when I, when I say this, there's a lot of guys who would just be like, my God, like, like they freak out because think of the responsibility you now have to carry to get there, but you're worth it for the, for the men and the women who are listening to this, you're worth that. And we have so many cultural stories, both in our family and in our society that tell us we're not, but we are. And so, you know, when we look at this and we look at who do we want to be, what life do we want to live? Like for my marriage, I want to write an epic love story. No epic love story is going to come from me just constantly eking by by the skin of my teeth. At some point, I have to evolve and get the castle in the sky. You know, at some point, I have to become the noble king. And that point right now is today. It's not tomorrow. It's today. And it's today every day. Every day is day one. Yeah, man. Again, man, so, so much, so much relatable experience. And I, I imagine I'm, I'm pretty confident that any man listening to this will be able to see himself at some stage of that story. Because right? we're, we're covering decades of timeline here when it comes to our personal transformations that we're sharing. And um, I think that's also important just to add a little footnote is that this isn't like a snap your fingers. Oh, my God, I heard Dylan on the Rising Man podcast. And all of a sudden, my beliefs and my stories are different. No, this is like, to re, you got to revisit the well. You got to crack that foundation, break it down, dig it up, and restore it with something different. At least that's been my experience. And one hundred percent. Even just in this past year, the what you shared up there about this, um, basically your reflection of my story as being the sole provider in my family. I recognized that the moment my wife started to make money, and we actually had a partnership when it came to bringing resources into our household. My instinct was competition. She can't make more money than me. And underneath it, thank God that I have, you know, the support of my men's team and all this amazing community way underneath that was what's my, what's my role here. If my wife doesn't need me to, to, to just get us by. And what if, what if she doesn't need me at all because she's so successful. And that was when I said, wow, okay, this is really problematic because there's not really any conscious part of me that wants to sabotage my wife's success. (laughs) That just doesn't even make sense. But it also was a reflection of how uh, preciously I held that story. And that's totally. what really got my attention. Like, okay, this I got to really look at this. Because if that's my instinctual response, my reflex, I don't want that. 100%. Well, and, and for the men who are listening, like, stop and think about this. Do you want somebody who's with you because they're dependent on you? Or do you want somebody who doesn't need you, who chooses you anyway? 
you know, I want to write an epic love story. Which one actually, like, she's completely dependent on me and has no choice? That's not epic. It's not even a love story. That's that's a captured, you know, in-house person who's trading her body and her time and her energy in order for you to continue to keep a roof over her head. That's not, no. That is, that is a perverted parent-child relationship, and we shouldn't want that. <laughs> now... Is for so anyone who's listening, I want to I want to very premise that like the partnership part can exist where you have, you know, a stay at home spouse and a sole provider. Like I, I I know a lot of people who make that work, and it requires a lot of intentionality to make sure you don't create a dependency, right? Because the dependency is the the bad part, not necessarily the arts and crafts. But I, I have the same I have the exact same feelings as you do because once I got my wife through graduate school, got her the job that she she, she really wanted. Uh, she was making more to me and she's made more to me ever since. Um, and so there was this point of like, oh, well, then who am I anymore? And I was like, well, I'm the guy who's going to help us manage money. And so it was, you know, I'm going to add this value to my relationship by being a good steward of our resources. And so I started I started budgeting. I started creating a, a, you know, a battle plan for every single month of how we how we were going to manage every dollar. And it took me nine months to come anywhere close to staying with it. I had to make a lot of mistakes in full view of my wife while we were doing this and deal with the emotional fallout because money's emotional at the end of the day. And that's exactly what you're talking about, where she's now suddenly an equal partner in this relationship from an economic standpoint. You know, that level of communication and how you navigate that emotional component is what's going to make or break your success in this, both in your partnership, the economic business partnership that is, you know, you and your wife, or me and my wife, or you know, whatever formation it comes in. Right. And yourself personally, because if you if you don't believe that you have that you're worthy of managing your resources and having you know good understanding of where your money is coming in and where it's going, then there's no way that you're going to believe that you can ask for the promotion or that you should leave your job and go find something better when your boss suddenly becomes toxic or to be able to support your wife when she comes home and is like, you know what, I'm going to take six months off of work because I, I can't handle it. Right. All things that have happened. <laughs> right. And so, you know, dealing with the emotional side of this is the critical component that makes it sustainable over the long term. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's spin it over to the emotional side of money, because I know that was one of the things you said we, you want to make sure that we weave in here and you've done a nice job of that. Uh, before we talk about the, the emotions of money, I think the the other piece to this journey for me was also seeing that there was a couple of big mile markers, right? That that first indication of, oh, wow, this is my reflexive response when my wife starts making money. That's interesting. I want to look at that. Um, there was another time where I looked at my bank account and said, wow, this is more money than I think I've ever had or seen on a screen that reflects my bank account. I don't even know what to do with this. Wow. That's interesting too. So like you just said, being not even being ready for the promotion or not even being ready to deal with the emotion that might come up in that future scenario that a part of me has been wanting and desiring for a long time, there is preparation that that goes into that. And then um, I think for a lot of people who haven't experienced that, it's hard to, it's very abstract, right? Cause it's like, it's a mindset. You hear other people talking about it. You're trying to learn from other people's experiences about what it feels like to be in that place. But then all of a sudden you find yourself there and realize, Oh yeah, there's actually something to this. You don't just suddenly know how to be in this new embodiment when it comes to anything really, but especially different levels of financial success. Totally. And, and your, your, your viewpoint is going to change over time. 
Mm-hmm. Like people will get caught in cultural stories, and this goes right into the emotion part of it, right? If you know, it's there's a question of if I'm not what I've always been, then who am I, right? So, like, how many of us have been taught by our families, like, you never turn down a dollar, right? When I was a teacher, a hundred dollars, if somebody offered me a hundred dollars for an afternoon worth of work, I had I always had to say yes because I needed that money. I was so poor and the welfare wasn't cutting it, right? Like, I had to say yes. And now where I'm sitting, $1,000 means nothing to me. You know, that repeatedly would, but, you know, on a one-off, $1,000 isn't isn't material to me anymore. That's a part of the evolution. So I had to give up that identity. So many people are taught like, oh, but, you know, money is evil or, you know, white-collar work is bad or blue-collar work is bad or whatever. This becomes part of the cultural identity. And the question then becomes for us is, is that what we actually want to have? So as we as you first start sitting down and getting control of your financial house, one of the things you're going to notice right off the bat is like, oh, my God, like I, I don't I'm spending more, more money in this one place than I think I'm spending less money in this other place than I think. And at the end of the day, I have to change something. Well, if I'm going to change something, my lifestyle is going to change. And chances are good. We're living the lifestyle we think is good. You know, with the air quotes on that, right? And so, like, you know, I'll give you a great example of that. When I first created a budget and looking at it and going, okay, let's, I, I think, you know, here's my groceries and here's my dine out, right? So everything that wasn't from the grocery store and sit down and go through all my credit card statements and be like, wow, my dine out is three times what my grocery bill is. I thought it was like $200. It was actually $1,200. And then I look at it a little further and it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting fried chicken like every other day. I had no idea. I'm not that kind of guy. Well, guess what? My <laughs> the numbers don't lie. Right. My budgets and how I spend my money is a statement of my values. And my values apparently were eating at a fried chicken place all the time. And so now I have to sit down and ask myself, why am I doing this? And so what what do you think the the first instinct that everyone has? I'm just going to cut that out. I'm just going to mm-hmm. cut it out. No no but, I didn't bother to think about like why I was doing it, what it was serving, how it was enhancing my life, right. where did it fit in? And I remember the day, like I, the next month I was like, no eating out, none, zero. Mm-hmm. And I like suddenly like came to awareness that I'm in the line at the fried chicken place, handing my credit card through the window with no idea how I got in the line, mm-hmm. no idea. And, and, and realizing like, but I had lunch, like, why am I going to eat these two chicken sandwiches when I know they're going to make me feel like shit. And so this was now the invitation to sit down and go, oh yeah, I'm eating these because that's how I feel better about life. Mm. Because I have this attachment because I went to that same place with my dad on the weekends and it was always a special thing. So whenever I'm feeling dysregulated, I go and eat this fried chicken sandwich. Mm. And so now I, now I'm faced with the questions of saying, okay, well, this is the emotional component. Me telling myself, just cut it out was not actually healthy. Because I'm undercutting an emotional support that I need at the time while I build something different. And so this draconian, I think this is the common budget advice. People are like, cut that out, cut that out. Like we, you know, no, like understand why you're spending it and how it's serving you. Cause it is, we don't do things without a purpose. It's serving you somehow. And this also applies to, you know, and you can expand this out and say, why do you, why are you driving a house payment with your pickup truck? part of your cultural identity. It's so it's a status symbol. Like that's what it is. That's why people have it. And so like no shade to people who want to have the pickup truck, but being honest about I am paying a premium in my life. 
I'm taking resources because part of my values is a status symbol that doesn't actually serve the rest of my life. And that's fine. It's not for me to tell you yes or no, but it is for us as men to be intentional about what we're doing and pull that into the light and out of the shadows so that we can see it. Because at the end of the day, money's emotional. I think you shed light on something that's really, really important is that we don't do anything by accident. If if there's one thing that I've learned over the years, there's, there's always a reason behind the choices and decisions we make. Now, I think a lot of them are choices and decisions we made a long time ago that we just got used to making on repeat now and forget along the way, why do I do this? Why do I do this? It becomes so natural. But even just approaching it with that curiosity to look at it with and, and not to let not to make it an invitation for shame. Like you said, that like shame comes in, then it's okay, wow, this is a horrible thing. I have to cut it out immediately. But actually looking at, okay, well, why am I doing this right now? And if I am going to cut it out, then there's going to leave, it's going to leave a void. There's going to be something else that must fill it. What would I want to fill that with? I think this is where this intentional rebuilding, refoundationing of our lives starts. And it's like you said, it's, you can't separate those emotions from no. the conversation. Well, not for you and not for your spouse, right? When, when, I, when I was doing this, my, my second daughter had just been born and, and I had quit teaching him back in graduate school. And so I, I sat down with the whole budget and it was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to have this perfect budget. We're going to, we're going to move all the money. We're going to be really disciplined. Right. And so I told her, I told my wife, I was like, all right, our grocery bill was this last month. We're going to reduce that by 10%. And she came apart. Like absolute came apart. We ended up in a huge fight. We're yelling and screaming at each other. And I'm just like, well, I just want to stop us from sliding into bankruptcy. Like to me, I'm, I'm the hero of my own story. Well, what I what I failed to consider was what I just told my wife was I'm going to starve our children. That is what she emotionally heard when I started talking about the grocery bill. Is in because in her mind, you know, our kids they will always eat first, and they're going to eat the best foods because she loves them and she wants them to grow up healthy and happy and strong. And so she doesn't give a shit if I have to work extra hours. Because aren't our kids worth it? And I just told them, told her, no, they're not. You know, and she's breastfeeding at the time. And if you've ever had a, a, a woman around you who's breastfeeding, you know that they have to eat a lot to be able to produce the milk to feed the child. And so for her, I was telling her I was going to starve her too. You know, and so all of those components are fitting in here. The conversation is not about money. It's about how are we as a couple sharing our values and our budget is a statement of values. That's what we're actually talking about is our values as a couple. And so when you reframe the conversation and start saying, okay, I want to make sure we're on the same page. And she says, well, it's really important to me that we have really good food for our babies. That line item, we're going to make sure that it has enough. And I'm willing to move things around elsewhere and go, you know, maybe I don't actually need that extra thing. Right. So like in my case, it was the gym membership. I was in school. I could go to the school gym. Right. So I'll just go to the school gym, cut that out. That's an extra 200 bucks a month and I'm good to go, right? We didn't have a Planet Fitness because, you know, Flagstaff. But you get the idea how this works where you start asking yourself, is this actually serving me? And is there other ways that I can do this? Now we're having a conversation. Now my marriage is more about values. We're now sharing values through that joint conversation as a couple. We're able to get more on the same page. And I now have this beautiful opportunity to be curious about my wife, this new mother, and really learn about her in a way that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. 
That's great, man. <laughs> so much good stuff here. Try to capture it in one episode. You know, there's another piece of this that I think a lot of people will relate to is the the way I experience it is being able to have to come up with multiple different possibilities and, and not mm-hmm. seeing it as so black and white. Because uh, I've done that exercise before too. I'm sure other people who are listening have done this, where you look at something and say, there's only one option here and this is it. Because I get so con- convicted around it and that this is the way we're going to reduce our budget by we're never going to go out to eat, right? I, that was that was one of my solutions was, okay, for three months, we're, no dining out. We can save X amount of dollars if we don't eat out, period. And I was doing exactly what you did. I was ignoring something that fulfilled a value that my wife had that I didn't care about. Like f- food is fuel, but she enjoys the whole experience of dining out and being, it, it provides something for her. I wasn't even considering that. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering how to approach this so that there's... Um, because I imagine for you that this was not an overnight thing that you, like you said, took many different renditions of this. And um, even just realizing that there's some incongruency of values or places to explore values with your partner. Uh, so what does it look like from a bigger picture perspective to navigate this and finally get a, a budget that reflects the values that you and your partner might actually share? I think the first and foremost thing is that you have to go in with grace you know, I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to make mistakes. You know, I th- the, there's very common, and this is why people would hire me as a financial coach is because they get in and then immediately the emotions come up, the shame, I shouldn't be here, I should have been better. I'm, you know, and they, like they spiral. My job as a coach is to to hold that space and be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to let you maybe for the first time in your life experience non-judgment around money. And I'm just going to hold that and I'm going to let you guys in the same with couples, right? Mm-hmm. When they get, they get angry and the guy's like, but, but, but I was like, yeah, okay, just breathe. You're going to be fine. The world is okay. You are okay. And we're going to figure this out. And really then hammering in and starting to say like, okay, we have to come in with grace. We have to admit that we don't know this. There's no natural reason why humans would know how to do this. Like there just isn't, there's nothing in our DNA, nothing in our history in which was like, it's not like, you know, you had, you know, paleolithic people who were like, let's get out the spreadsheet rock and like figure out what we need for firewood. Like they didn't do that. So we have to understand that we're going to make mistakes and we're not going to be perfect. But there, this isn't a statement of restrictions. Our budget is a statement of values. And we're going to start working at this. We're going to be intentional because if you're not intentional, your shadow will be. So you have a choice. You can do it or you can let your shadow do it, but somebody's going to do it. And so it's particularly with couples of really like getting clear as to like, what, is, what are your hard points here? What, where are you, you know, where are you short? Where are you not? Where, what is unnegotiable to you? And have you ever had that conversation with your partner? Mm. You know, like for, I would imagine for your wife with the dining out, as I say, well, we're not going to die out. And she's like, but now we're not going to date anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's an invitation to say, well, I want to save money because it's really important, but I really want to date you. And so I let's let's pretend we're back in college again, and I'm going to come up with all the cheap ways to do this, right? Maybe you as the man now need to step up and make sure that you can create safety and security for her by saying, well, I'm going to just start leaving her notes because notes are free. <laughs> post-it notes are cheap. Yeah. And I'm just going to put little post-it notes where she'll find them throughout the day. And now she can say, well, I still love you. And I still am with you. And I still want to do this, right? That's a way that you can start saying, well, okay, the, it wasn't the actual dining out. It's the emotional connection with my partner. That is the distillation of what's the value. The emotional connection with my partner. How can we foster that? 
in new ways together. What's going to speak to her? And if she's like, no, it has to be a restaurant. Ooh, what, where, what, how, how young were you when you learned that restaurants translate to love? Let's have that conversation. And this is an opportunity then to like learn about your spouse, right? There's a lot of facets, but every road at the end of the day leads right back to the emotions. The emotions are what make the decision, not the logic. Yeah. What about just to take a segue for a moment? What about people who are going along this journey and, and they don't have a partner yet? Um, totally. Man, I think conversations it conversations with yourself. Yeah, definitely conversation with yourself. I mean, obviously, I think it makes it a little more simple. Is that something that you think is um, for somebody who could? Do you think this is imp- imperative work to do before getting into committed partnership? One hundred percent. I've I've had couples that actually come to me for like pre marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quote unquote, because I'm not a counselor, I'm a coach. Sure. Um, and they're like, we 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 got it. We're gonna blend finances. We're like, cool. When have you sat down and had a, a business meeting? Hmm. Right. And the business meeting needs to be with you know they have just sitting down and be like, wait, you have how much in student debt? Yeah, let's have that conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, oh, you're spending. You know, and and for guys specifically, um, and, and this is this is always a little bit of an awkward conversation. How much money they spend on OnlyFans? Hmm. Like, have you actually been that transparent with your your, your partner? Mm-hmm. Um, that's always a fun conversation for me to facilitate. Oh, but yeah. if you're having it with yourself, like on some levels, it's easier because there's only one voice. But in reality, there's not because there's nothing to bounce it off of. When your partner is holding you accountable and you have to hold space for her, you're inherently holding space for yourself. Right. But if you're by yourself, that's a harder thing in my mind. And so what I would say is like, when you're going through this, like I have a lot of single people come through and be like, I just need you to be my my sounding board. Cool. That is my role as a coach. Um, But it is imperative. If you're a single guy, you know, think about, you know, if you're a single guy, especially if you want to have a family, how much more attractive are you when you have your shit together? Like at the end of the day, women do what's attractive to women on a long term is a guy who has a shit together. And if you're well put together, but your finances are are a dumpster fire, like she's not going to feel comfortable, you know. So sitting down and having this conversation, and maybe, and for me specifically, this has always been a good tactic. Explain it to yourself in the mirror. So if you're looking at the dine out and you're like, "Why is it that this is here? Why is it that I've decided that this is important to me to spend this much money on fried chicken?" Go to the mirror, look yourself in the eye, and explain it to yourself, because you can't bullshit yourself. You're going to have to hear it out loud and you'll be like, well, I, I do it because it's just fun. Yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> Why do you really do it, Dylan? Um, and let's have that conversation. It's important and imperative you start having it because it's much harder if you get into a relationship, particularly after you've said the vows and all the people go home. Now you're going to have a business meeting. You've never seen this side. I've watched couples turn on each other mm. over this topic because remember, Money is where you put the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs on. And so now we're going to dig under the foundation of your marriage. <laughs> that's hard. Yeah. Well, I think that's really one of the scariest points for going back to people Holy. who are in partnership and saying, wow, okay, we're going to have these conversations now. Just the existential fear of survival. Will we make it through? Is, yeah. our, is our relationship strong enough to survive going and digging some skeletons up out from underneath this foundation that we built a 5, 10, 20 year relationship on. And I think there's got to just be that faith that um, having more honest conversations are more challenging in the moment, but they're a better long-term investment. Totally. 
it, like the one thing I've always said to people is when when have you ever gone through a situation where you had more transparency, more communication and more clarity in what you're doing and it was worse? Mm-hmm. That world doesn't exist. Right. And so I think a lot of people are afraid of the, like you said, I think you said it brilliantly, where are the skeletons buried and can we survive digging them up? Well, you can't survive if you don't because they're going to decay and they're going to create sinkholes underneath your foundation. And so the sooner you're able to dig them up and look at them, the safer you're going to be in the long term. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's just worth it. Yeah, I think it's the momentary pain or discomfort versus dragging out that suffering and pain over a longer period of time. And not just for myself, but if my partner is involved, then choosing that pain for them as well. I think it's uh, the more honest we can be about what are the real conditions and circumstances to, for our decisions around this, I think is is really important just to be that level of honest about it too. Like you said, looking in the mirror and saying, what am I actually doing to my family by avoiding having these conversations? Totally. I, you know, I, I've had a, and this, this will relate, so just bear with me for a second. Um, but I get a lot of young men who will say, well, like, you know, that was great that you had this moment with as a teacher and you had such clarity about what to do next. Well, in retrospect, it looks like that, but I didn't. I had no idea how the hell I was going to go from teaching to being in the room where it happens and making a a butt ton of money. But I did know one thing, that the man who was in the room where it happens and the man who was the elite, you know, moneymaker, because I didn't have, accountant was not in my brain at that time. But I did know that that guy had a clean car. And so I went and I I cleaned the car. I cleaned my, I was driving a 97 Honda Civic, two-door coupe. It was a rust bucket. But you know what? It was clean and it was it was clean on the outside, it was clean on the inside. And I was never ashamed when somebody was like, hey, I need a ride. Because how many of us have a, a car that's just a dump and we're like shoveling shit into the back seat so they can sit down? Like that's embarrassing. But once I had a clean car, I was I was always able to say yes to giving someone a ride, which means now I have an opportunity for an intimate conversation. I've done them a favor. We've done something very human, which is to travel together. And, I, and there was no no extra stressors on it. So the question that I would say when it comes to finances is, where is your car not clean? If somebody came in and wanted to look at all of your credit card statements and your bank statements, are you ashamed of it? Because if you are, if there's things like, I don't want them to look at this, well, then maybe that's something you need to start taking care of. Because I think in my mind, a good North Star for everybody is I want to live a life where I can be completely in the sunlight for everyone to see and be ashamed of nothing. And I think that that applies to your finances almost first and foremost. That's beautiful, man. Um, Well, man, time has flown and I want to make sure that we get you out of here on time. So I'm going to ask you a few lightning questions and then tell everybody where they can come and find you. Um, You ready for the lightning round? 100%. Love it. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So what is one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? One thing I wish I knew when I was 18. Go in on yourself. Hmm. Go on. You're you're the best bet you're ever going to make. Love it. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Honesty. Complete, unfettered, unadulterated honesty. And what does the world need most from men right now? To be more human. To be do more of the things that humans do, to be in communion, communion, to be in community, to break bread, to gather in person, to be in a human relationship with each other. Amazing, man. 
Dylan, it's been wonderful having you here, man. Why don't you go ahead and just tell everybody where they can go to find you and, and hear more about what you're doing with Fiscally Savage and your whole new business here. Yeah, my coaching practice is called Fiscally Savage. You can find me at FiscallySavage.com and you can find me on the podcast of the exact same name, which is Fiscally Savage, anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Fiscally Savage. I am far more active on Instagram than anywhere else. So if you listen to the podcast and you got a question, comment, concern, or worry, just DM me. I would love to address it on the podcast. Awesome, Dylan. Well, hey, man, I'm going to have to pull you in here another time because there's just too much great wisdom that you've accumulated over the years to try and capture in one episode. But thank you for making time in your day, from your family, from your work to be here and to share this message with other men out there. I really appreciate you, man. It's 100% my pleasure. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Dylan dropped so much wisdom in this one. You probably need to go back and take another listen. So make sure you go follow Dylan. Make sure you check this episode out and share it with somebody else who needs to hear it. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. And until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.